heard a portion of a peaceful march in Hoboken, New Jersey on June 6, 2020. It was organized by a chapter of the Black Lives Matter Network to protest the murder of George Floyd by police officers in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It was one of numerous protests held around the United States and the world to protest Floyd's death. But organizers also insisted on not treating this one murder as an isolated incident. Instead, it was another chapter in the daily violence against black people that has not ceased since human beings were first exported from the African continent, sold, and consigned to forced labor over 500 years ago. Let's be clear. Black Lives Matter is a slogan. It's a hashtag. It's a way to organize in communities. But scholars refer to this latest incarnation of the black freedom struggle as the movement for black lives. And it's not a new civil rights movement, although the tools of civil rights, the right to walk across a university quad without being stopped by campus police, the right not to be murdered for a minor traffic infraction, the right not to be killed in your own home during the execution of a no-knock warrant, the right not to be suffocated during an unnecessary arrest, all of these rights are certainly relevant. Instead, the movement for black lives seeks to transform a society that has always been lethal for black people. And in our gun-saturated American culture, where white nationalism plays an increasing role in unleashing violence, it isn't always the police that take black lives. This new phase of the freedom struggle was inaugurated in 2012 when neighborhood vigilante George Zimmerman saw African-American teenager Trayvon Martin walking down the street in Sanford, Florida. Zimmerman stalked the younger man and in the course of an illegal attempt to apprehend and question him, shot Martin. Why? Because, as Zimmerman explained, the young man was wearing a hoodie and looked suspicious. Not only did the Department of Justice decline to prosecute Zimmerman under federal hate crime statutes, but on June 10, 2013, a jury also acquitted him of all charges. Stunned at the verdict, Los Angeles community organizer Patrice Cullors wrote on her Facebook, Black Lives Matter. In subsequent days, Cullors, Opal Tometi, and Alicia Garza created what they called the Black Lives Matter Network, a collection of organizations around the country that reignited the freedom struggle by organizing to stop police violence through community-based direct action and imagining a future where the most vulnerable among us, women, queers, immigrants, trans, and disabled people, were at the center of the movement's concerns. The movement for black lives makes demands on municipalities, the decriminalization of society and redirecting police budgets to humanitarian needs are among them. Like some earlier social justice movements, organizers are deeply embedded in their own communities and committed to a democratic praxis, this time informed by black feminism. But unlike prior movements, which often centered the entry of black people into existing institutions, such as education, politics, and business, the movement centers a broader critique of capitalist society and demands transformation. As movement scholar Diva Woodley has argued, what democratic education should do and what social movements must do is to help people connect the dots between the problems that they are experiencing in their own lives, their values, and possible and desirable solutions. Because of its decentralized nature, the movement isn't easy to study. 
Scholars have to be agile and commit to the small community groups that spend less of their time marching and protesting over the high-profile murders that make the national news than in working through the daily forms of violence that don't make the news, practicing care in community, processing trauma, and making sure that black lives are not only mourned, but celebrated, honored, and committed to joy. This is why I asked Christopher Paul Harris, a graduate of the New School for Social Research in Political and Historical Studies, and now an assistant professor in Global Black Studies at the University of California, Irvine, to join us to talk about his new book, To Build a Black Future, The Radical Politics of Joy, Pain, and Care, just out from Princeton University Press, draws on Harris's own experiences as an activist and organizer to analyze contemporary black struggle and places that struggle in the long history of black oppression, resistance, community making, and joy. Join Chris and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, Professor of History Emeritus at the New School for Social Research, a contributing editor at Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is episode 37, Black Resistance, Black Joy. Harris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Claire. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Can you describe for our listeners what is the narrative that this book lays out? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a big question, but I'll try. On some level, this book is about a generational politics by which I mean, and people generally mean the political positions that people born between a certain span of years, in this case, millennials, we're talking about 1981 to 1996, sort of political positions that they come to, and more specifically, how and why they came to those positions. More specifically, though, I was interested in, from that general frame of a generational politics, I was interested in Black movement, or came to be interested in Black movement, and the way this generation of Black activists, Black organizers, Black cultural workers were interpreting the world that they were moving through and trying to analyze, but also how that interpretation differed from or built upon the way that Black activists, organizers, and cultural workers pursued the same ends. Um, So from a broad perspective, this is a narrative about Black movement in the present from a generational lens and how Black movement in the present intermingles with and diverges from Black movement in the past. And of course, my generation, and I'm 65 years old, grew up with the civil rights movement. And that kind of movement had a sort of linear trajectory, which is we're going to organize, we're going to register people to vote, we're going to get a Voting Rights Act, we're going to get Black people into the electorate. Along the way, lots of people were killed, lots of people were beaten. There's just a lot of violence directed at that movement. But there's this kind of trajectory toward this one thing, voting and democracy. 
But the movement for Black lives doesn't have that kind of linear trajectory. And I wonder if you could define the movement, describe the movement for our listeners. Absolutely. I think a good place to start with this is to move back to where you uh, were just speaking to, which is the civil rights movement and this perception, I would say, of a linear narrative. Many historians of that time and, and you know, people who work about contemporary movement now point out that that period in Black struggle was never linear. Of course, the story that we hear about it and that we tell ourselves about it appears to be that, but it was always um, a space of contestation. It was always a space of uh, strategic alliances and divergences. It was always a space where people struggled to figure out what it would mean to get free for, for Black folks. And it ended up being this incorporation, you know, rights, equality, et cetera, this, this way of being. But, you know, just to say that that wasn't always the dominant frame. And even when it became the dominant frame or gave the guise of being the dominant frame, it wasn't what everybody thought would get Black people to a place akin to freedom. And so when we think about the movement for Black lives, I think we can speak in similar terms. Uh, what I try to do is lay out a broad political culture and a broad ter ideological terrain that many people across movement organizations and cultural workers and whatnot probably could identify with or things that I've noticed and observed in a variety of spaces, but I in no way attempt to describe or outline a monolithic or uniform perspective any more than we might be able to say about other moments in Black struggle, like the civil rights movement. Uh, so we can speak a little bit more about the, the characteristics of the movement that I hone in on in the book, but I think it's just important to notice or to, to note that uh, what's most interesting to me is a culture that emerges within Black movement right now that's specific to now for various reasons that we can talk about and that looking at the different nodes in which that operates and the different spaces in which it emerges is much more the focus of this book than an attempt to outline a uniform trajectory or organizational infrastructure. And I just want to stick with this topic of the movement not being monolithic for a second, because I totally agree with you. I don't think any movement is monolithic. And then what we see in the new left more generally is it's very male dominated. And of course, there are extremely important women in the movement. There's Ella Baker in the Black Panthers. You've got people like Kathleen Cleaver. You've got Angela Davis, who's not a Panther, but she's really speaking to the most radical parts of the Black movement. And yet over and over again, we see men driving the new left. So in your book, you really show how feminist perspectives and queer perspectives are being centered in the movement. And not only that, but that those perspectives become extraordinarily useful tools for managing conflict. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's been pointed out by many people who have observed the movement, whether 
up close in a scholarly study like this one is categorically, I suppose, and also people who have just observed it from you know, the, a popular perspective, the people that tend to be front and center and attached to Black Lives Matter are women. So centering those who have traditionally been left to the periphery when it comes to Black movement, I think has a lot to do with a conjuncture in which the observation that Black women, Black queer folks, Black trans folks can be content or can generate or move according to a politics that holds them aside was no longer tenable, both for people who identify as such, but also and more significantly for liberation struggle as a whole. I think people have come to understand that solidarity, unity, or anything that can approach those categories requires a greater sensitivity to folks who have, as you've pointed out, and as many people have noted, traditionally been left to the side. So it's not simply there are more Black women or Black trans folks visible. It is not simply that feminism has become important, but as an overall orientation towards what Black struggle is and what Black struggle means, there has generally been a recognition that without centering those who have been traditionally placed on the periphery of power, both within Black movements and within society itself, it'll be impossible to move forward. To the second point of that question, that impossibility of moving forward, that perspective also circles back to how we organize amongst each other. So it's not simply about who's in the room and who's involved, but how do we adjudicate conflict? How do we think through the way society has positioned us to be in terms of how we interact with each other while we're in organizing spaces? So if you combine that with what I was gesturing towards before with a recognition that there's no way for us to get out of the conditions that we're in without properly accounting for and centering those who have been on the periphery of movement and society, and then pair that with the idea that, okay, well, now that we're thinking differently about that, how do we incorporate those practices, those political ethics that would emerge from that kind of centering into how we practice movement building amongst each other? That's a long-winded way of saying that, to me, the Black feminist, Black queer, Black queer feminist bent of the movement is about an overall praxis that is on the one hand tied to an analysis of the world as it is, an analysis of the world that we want to see, and a recognition that in order to combine or move from point A to point B, we need to have an integrated modality that doesn't just present lip service to the idea of centering the historically marginalized, but understands to properly do that requires an internal shift, a different way of being with and for each other, a different way of organizing. And that's why we see the attempt at the very least to shift the terrain of organizing to recognize the way that Black movement in the past has failed to adequately account for uh, all Black life. And you say at a certain point that past Black liberation movements 
have to be understood as incomplete, not as wrong, but as simply not having achieved their objectives. And the book also places this conundrum in the center of its analysis, which is the violence of the Black past, the violence that has historically been done to people through slavery, through lynching, through Reconstruction. I'm interested in this point that you make where you say we have to both acknowledge that past and we also have to escape it in order to move forward. So so how does Black politics both address the past and then move beyond it in order to do its work? Great question. I think one way to address that is to circle back to what we were just talking about as it pertains to the centrality of Black feminist analytics and Black feminist practice when it comes to how Black movement organizes itself to do organizing work. That is simultaneously an acknowledgement of the past. In some sense, the contributions of Black women, Black queer folks on the one hand, on the, in another sense, the ways that Black women, Black queer, queer folks had to organize themselves on the periphery of, of more male-dominated hierarchical movements. And so to address that issue again, we can see in a very concrete and tangible ways an acknowledgement of the inadequacies of Black movement in the past to properly account for Black women, Black queer, Black trans folks, and the way that contemporary movement tries to move past those inadequacies in order to create a movement that doesn't trip over itself in the same ways. And so in a, in a very concrete way, we can see the centrality of uh, a Black feminist praxis in the contemporary moment as speaking to the past in this dualistic way, both the past contributions of Black women and, and, and queer and trans folks, but also the inadequacy of Black movement in the past to properly account for those contributions and their centrality to Black liberation struggles. Just to let our listeners know, you've spent time sitting with, listening to, in community with, marching with the Movement for Black Lives, or parts of it. And part of what you point to is being able to draw on a Black past for ways of coping with the present and moving forward. Can you talk about some of those practices? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that was most striking to me when I first joined the movement organization that I was a part of, which was the Black Youth Project 100, BYP 100, their New York City chapter, one of the first things I noticed was altar making. I noticed the idea of, you know, kind of grounding the space you know, with a certain sort of atmosphere, so the burning of sage. I noticed the insistence on channeling or bringing into the space ancestors and ancestral traditions. What that came to me mean for me in observing it as a central practice in movement is a desire to step outside of 
Western dominant frames and recover something that is both a tradition within Black diaspora culture. So making that connection to the past. And this is the part of it that I find so interesting. It also represents that which is outside of the dominating culture of Western liberal capitalist hegemony. And so to recover these practices is not just a gesture towards the past and to claim in an identitarian way a relationship to that past, the ancestors, but it is also, I think, to try to bring into the present a praxis that is not beholden to capitalist social uh, relations and the paradigms of liberalism that most of us come to understand, whether we claim it or not, operate through. And, you know, so this interesting combination of gesturing through the past in order to bring something into the present that might lead us to a different kind of future precisely because it is not weighed down completely by that which structures our present. One of the things that's very vivid in the book is your description of the way that songs and chants and shouts create community in the moment and create community around everyone feeling the same emotion. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the history of the shout and the chant and the song? Yes, it's a long history that I can't really do justice to in this moment. But what I do think I can say succinctly that allows for people to understand the centrality and gravity of music, song, and dance in Black culture is to gesture not only towards the importance of movement, song, and dance in slave quarters. And in this case, I'm not talking about the performances that would be done for the amusement of the master class, right, which, which uh, Sadia Hartman in her book, Scenes of Subjection, talks about and critiques, talking about the ways that Black people who were enslaved were able to steal away time and use their bodies in order to create something for themselves with each other. And that tradition carries over into Black spaces, Black social life in the church, right? And so when you get, get to certain modes of Black worship, you see the same types of expression, the same types of freedom with and through the body, with and through each other that creates a collective effervescence of a we that sits above and surpasses what our present condition might be. And so with that tradition, and you know, a lot of people talk about the civil rights movement and the importance of song in the civil rights movement, that, that tradition is carried through for hundreds of years and what the way that it manifests itself, at least to my mind, in contemporary praxis, is an extension of that tradition that allows us to understand that we are already more than what we're structured to be and the future that we're striving towards, the future that we're hoping to, to build is already here in our ability to express this type of joy, in our ability to create this 
type of community. And so in that sense, it is to say that the future that we want to, to inhabit will be one that is joyous, will be one that is filled with shouting, will be one that is filled with a collective we that is communicated through the gesture, through songs and through dance and that with the proper critique of the world that makes joy something that is enclosed to a period of time or a particular space that will the future tense version of the world will be one in which that is no longer the case. I want to come back to the idea of black joy in a second, but I want to move us to the opposite of that, which is the violence done to black people and the killing and the beating, the mindless arrest of children often in schools. You talk about social media as a sort of key factor here that is not only allowing people to organize and spreading information and so on, but that videos of some of the terrible killings that have captured our attention also spread on social media. And you you talk about them as modern slave narratives, which I thought was just ingenious. So A, could you talk to our listeners a little bit about the importance of the slave narrative? So slave narratives have broadly been one of the most important and significant tools, an avenue through which people could actually understand in some visceral way, the horrors of slavery. And so in that sense, these videos operate as modern day slave narratives precisely because they allow us to see if people were confused, the continued condition of captivity by virtue of the ease with which black people can be subject to gratuitous violence by the state or people operating on the state's behalf. And so that line from slavery up until 1865 through the conditions of black life now by framing it as slave narratives allows us to make that connection, pin down the fact that this is a structural problem. It is a structural issue. It's not something that will be solved by a law. In fact, it is embedded in the nature of the law itself. Uh, And so when we get to realizing that this institution of slavery is not yet gone as representative in these modern-day slave narratives of different testimonials of this gratuitous violence that Black people are subject to, the idea is that what is inspired through that is not simply horror or empathy for the people who are brutalized or their families or whatnot, but just a recognition that the only way out, the only recourse that we have from this structure that has carried forth since de jure slavery to what we encounter now is a different world altogether. And so recognizing, again, the continuity between these different um, kinds of narratives that point to the same and the continuity of that structure is to recognize the impossibility of anything else if we don't address that structure. Of course, one of the things that I have found characteristic of these videos for a long time is they are both 
horrifyingly violent and you know what the outcome is going to be as you're watching the video. But they also show Black people demonstrating enormous courage, people taking videos even though the police are telling them to stop. Philando Castile's partner, who is staying with him and begging him to stay alive until she can get help, even though her child is in the back seat saying, don't say those words, mommy, they'll kill you too. I mean, the the layers of courage that are in those videos are really astonishing. And of course, that was true of slave narratives too, wasn't it? Yes. So whereas the publication of slave narratives very much required the assistance of white abolitionists and ways of you know, people who were trying to support that endeavor. There was in some ways a structured support to get these narratives out for the purposes of white abolitionists' agendas that aren't necessarily in contradiction with the agendas of the formerly enslaved or Black folks in general, but just to say that there's some level of mediation. In the examples that we see the courage that you're referring to in the contemporary moment, while we can still say there is some level of mediation because we're using, people are using social media platforms and whatnot, there is also though another layer of autonomy, another layer of rejecting, packaging these narratives in a way that is going to appeal to a particular kind of audience. And so what I'm, what I'm trying to point towards is the, the lack of mediation is a represent, representative of the agentical way that Black people who bear witness to these acts of violence are refusing to have that story be either erased or silenced or mediated and mitigated by someone else. You will see it in the rawest form possible. We'll give it to you up front and then you'll do with, with it what you will, but we want you to see it. And that's what one of the things that's so powerful about the Diamond Reynolds video of, of Philando Castile is the commentary that she's provided in real time. She's telling us what's going on. She's saying, no, this is what you did was wrong, that the officer is there the whole time. And she is telling us, look at what you did. Look at what he did, addressing the officer and addressing the audience at the same time. That is a powerful, unmediated way of bearing witness to the gratuitous violence that was inflicted on her. And that is structurally available to all Black people at any time, anywhere. There's something important, especially through the lens of courage, to recognize where there is a divergence in what people are able to do now by virtue of social media that they weren't able to do then. And of course, what Philando Castile's killing made me think of was Mamie Till Mobley, because she's really the first one who says, no, you actually have to look at this. It is important that you look at this. And she has the courage to display her son's mangled, destroyed body to the entire world. One of the things the movement recognizes is that we need to attend to these things. We need to fight these things. We need to stop these things. We need to stop the killing of Black people. 
but we can't live in that place all the time and go on. So talk a little bit about Black joy as a way of seeing what's possible. You know, so this connects to, you know, our earlier conversation about the role of dance and song and culture and the shout, right? As a tradition that has always given life to Black culture and been an undercurrent of of Black politics. Now, what becomes unique in this moment in the practice of joy or in the kind of explicit way that organizers and activists or cultural workers are are pointing to to joy is precisely in that kind of dialectical or responsive relationship to pain. It is in the recognition that a video like Philando Castile's is possible or Mike Brown, Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, you know, the, the, the list goes on and on and on. In a world in which that is possible, the thing or one of the things that keeps us afloat is to recognize our ability to exact joy despite. But it doesn't end there, right? You know, a lot of people will critique things like black joy or or rest, right? As as like not really being radical or not really being able to address this structural paradigm we're talking about that makes available Black people uh, gratuitous violence as something that is available to or can occur to Black people at any time, anywhere. And that's true. But at the same time, without joy, the, the movement won't move forward because you need some affirmative, positive vision in order to galvanize that. So that's why it's so significant when, you know, during the uprisings in 2020, you don't just see the burning of the police precinct or the burning of cars. You don't just see the destructive defiance of rebellion. You also see Black people and allies of Black people taking up space in a joyous manner. And I think that's supposed to signal what is possible, what is here now and what is possible in the future in the world that we want to see. And so to me, Black joy becomes important, not just as a counterweight to pain, but as a gesture towards the world to come, something that invites people into that world. Organizers talk about more broadly, not just in, in Black spaces or Black movement, is, you know, well, how do you get people involved, right? How do you get people to want to be in that three-hour meeting, right? How do you get people to like, engage in principled struggle and have these exhausting, and I can tell you it is exhausting. It is exhausting. It can be painful. It can be all kinds of things that could very easily dissuade you from being involved in any of that, on top of the fact that at a distance you're seeing, you know, the violence that is perpetrated by the state on Black people, whether it's physical or, or, or economic or, you know, whatever it might be. So, so how do you get people coming back? How do you get people to stay? And I think joy is a tool in that both in terms of, as I said before, count, being a counterweight to pain and to stress and, and you know, the kind of the, the ways that the work is hard, the weight of the work. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, as a gesture towards what is possible and that possibility is already here. We're already, we already have the capacity for it. And so the future that we want isn't impossible by virtue of our ability to see joy. Yeah. And seize joy. 
and perform joy in spaces where joy isn't supposed to belong. That's really important. And I think one of the things that we haven't gotten to is the question of care. And I think that it's not just about people in the movement caring for each other and showing compassion and love for each other, but that in a world where Black people are the object of consistent violence in a world where a Black trans woman is killed on the street for being who she is, that's the sign of a pretty sick society and a society that itself needs care and that we need to attend to that. So, Chris, why should our listeners read this book now? (laughs) Yes, why should they read this book now? Um, (laughs) While the book is about Black movement, it is also about now. It is a story about now. It's a, it's a, a story about how Black movement has emerged now and the lessons from Black movement right now that we can all take on, at least those of us who are on the side of a better, brighter future for all people, and to recognize the blueprint that Black movement in the present has you know, given us, building on and diverging from the past. Uh, is something that we all should take seriously, particularly, as I said, those who want to fight for a better future, but more acutely and as well, those who are invested in revolutionary or radical traditions that have at their core the idea of a social transformation. I think what the Movement for Black Lives has done in creating a political culture, not just in or not just organizations, but a political culture, gives us a lot of purchase towards that. And no matter what kind of organizational structure you might be in or what, where you are politically, there's lots of space for you to, to take up some aspect of this culture, of this blueprint, and take it with you wherever you are towards what I hope to be would be a Black future, which is a future in which everybody, Black and non-Black, are free. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform, Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or to leave a comment. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And follow me on Twitter at Tenured Radical, that's capital T, capital R, or at my website, clairepotter.com. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time.